Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. I'm your host and creator, Jimmy, and each week I make a mixtape combining my love of 80s music with memories of growing up in a San Francisco Bay Area record shop. The 1980s will forever hold a special place in my heart, and I'm excited to share the memories and the music with those who experienced life during the decade, as well as anyone curious to learn what it was like to be there, but weren't. So whether you're a returning or a first-time listener, I invite you to relax and reminisce as I create a themed musical playlist comprised of songs from the greatest decade to live in and live through the 1980s. Last week, I shared my own subjective perspective on songs recorded and released by artists featuring the name of a city, state, country, continent, or popular travel destination in their title in my seventh episode titled, Are You Trippin'? That episode, along with others, are currently available to download and listen to on a variety of platforms, including Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, with new episodes available every Wednesday. You can also reach out to me by email at jeepmusicpodcast at gmail.com. My father used to say that practice makes progress, and I want to acknowledge the generous support and positive encouragement I continue to receive from listeners. I'd like to give a humble and heartfelt thank you for your support in the progression of this podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to hit follow, subscribe, and like. I'd also greatly appreciate any five-star ratings and or reviews, and please tell your friends, family, and anyone in between about Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. Again, thank you for listening, sharing, and supporting as I make mixtapes, talk about 80s music, and the memories associated with them for everyone to enjoy. When I was a kid, one of my favorite shows to watch on Saturday afternoons on Channel 44 was called Kids Incorporated. This was a show that featured a fictionalized musical group made up of five kids, two boys and three girls, ranging in ages from 9 to 14 years old. The show was also known for launching the careers of Fergie, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and Mario Lopez. The group would perform regularly at a local kids club slash soda shop, I think, or ice cream parlor. It was some kind of kids shop for sure, but I don't recall them ever really making anything. There was a sort of um, soda jerk there that um, was also the band's manager, if I remember correctly. But in any event, the group was known for singing their versions of popular top 40 radio hits of the day like Patti LaBelle's New Attitude or Culture Club's Karma Chameleon. Nothing was off limits. They even sang a cover once of Lamal's song, The Never-Ending Story, at one point. And I don't recall how it exactly fit into the storyline of the episode, but there it was. Kids Incorporated was a way to watch other kids my age, or similar, sing and dance to the latest hit songs that were being played on the radio, or that had videos that were airing on the popular music channels like MTV, in order to make their music more appealing to younger demographics. The first two seasons are the best, because it had my favorite cast member, Martika, 
or Marta Marrero, as she was known at the time. She would, of course, branch out after leaving the show after season two to focus on recording her debut album, which featured the massive hit song Toy Soldiers, as well as More Than You Know and her cover of I Feel the Earth Move. I always enjoyed the episodes where Martika was the focus because she was the most natural at acting and her singing was the most believable of the group. She just had this way of conveying the maturity of lyrics from songs like Janet Jackson's What Have You Done For Me Lately or The Go-Go's Head Over Heels. And she always led the other girls and the remainder of the group in dancing and motivating the crowd in the club. She was just the one that was always in the front and the one that in the group captivated my attention and that I was most interested in learning about. I remember when she left the series and they attempted to replace her with two precocious youngsters, a boy and a girl, who, though they were willing to do twice the amount of work, could never possess the charisma and infectious charm necessary to fill the shoes of one Martika. Our theme this week is leading ladies. I've heard the phrase said before that behind every great man, there's an even better woman or something similar to that. This was definitely the case during the 1980s when a rise of musical acts led by talented female vocalists demonstrated that behind every great woman was the rest of the men in the band. The musical world arguably wouldn't be what it is today without the phenomenal contributions made by women who can rock, roll, write, produce, and perform in front of and alongside the best of them. Our playlist includes songs from musical bands and groups featuring a female lead singer, making her mark and making history on the airwaves and on the charts. So bring the backstage passes, pump that fist high in the air, and prepare to dodge overzealous groupies as we make a mixtape. I've unwrapped another 60-minute blank Maxell audio cassette tape and placed it into the left side of the dual cassette tape player of my stereo system. I've pressed down the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to make another memorable mixtape filled with extraordinary 80s music. Out of respect for the copyright and creative process by the artists involved in all songs mentioned in the podcast, no music clips will be included. Instead, I will use my commentary about the songs and encourage the listener to support music sites by authentically acquiring access to them. I'll start side A of the mixtape and have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette player and begin our playlist with the first song. Track 1 was released in June of 1988 and peaked at number 8 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, and the song is I Hate Myself for Loving You. Joan Jett was already a rock star before we really got to experience what she could do during the 1980s. As a member of the short-lived all-female rock band The Runaways, she, along with fellow future 80s rocker Lita Ford, found success with their hit song Cherry Bomb. But when the group were unable to replicate or exceed the success of that song in their subsequent recordings, they disbanded at the end of the 1970s. Joan soon found that the limited success she had seen with The Runaways was in fact just that, limiting. Despite having no recording contract or financial backing from a record company, she continued to write music and create songs, including the song Bad Reputation. 
She shopped the demos of her music to 23 different record companies, ranging from the large ones like Warner Brothers Music and Virgin Music to mid-sized and smaller ones like EMI and Chrysalis. It's baffling to me to think that Chrysalis Records declined her demos, especially since Debbie Harry and Pat Benatar were already proven acts on the label at the time, and Joan Jett would have been a surefire bet to expand the fan bases of female-driven rock if they had signed her to their roster. Even after proving that she could play guitar, write music, and sing rock and roll, she was dismissed by all 23 companies with reasons as frivolous as that she didn't have the right look, or equally as absurd that she couldn't sing, despite having a mezzo-soprano vocal range. Evidently, the men that ran these companies had been sitting behind a cushy desk way too long, and they didn't recognize the talent and star power staring them in the face. Instead of wallowing in the sorrows of rejection from doors closed on her, Joan went to work on promoting her product her way by creating her own record label called Blackheart Records, which is still in business today. Once her debut album, Bad Reputation, was produced and released to the public, she began to get airplay and international sales, which prompted many of the original 23 record companies that had passed on her previously to approach her to now sign her with their label. But she passed on them because they had already proven that they didn't have the right look for her or her music. Joan Jett exemplifies all of the attributes associated with a rock star persona. Standing at 5 feet 5 inches, wearing black eyeliner, a jet black shack haircut, leather jacket, pants, and boots, but looking and sounding even taller than her fellow male and female rock and rollers, she more than proved that she had the look and that she was authentic when it came to living the lyrics of her songs. She's known for anthemic rock songs with choruses that so many people have carefree and courageously sang and shouted at the top of their lungs, myself included, whether it be the defiant, doing-it-her-way rationalization in her song Bad Reputation, with its opening lyrics of, I don't give a damn about my reputation, you're living in the past, it's a new generation, a girl can do what she wants to do, and that's what I'm gonna do. Or in the delightful declaration within the chorus of her cover of I Love Rock and Roll, where she exclaims, I love rock and roll, so put another dime in the jukebox, baby. I love rock and roll, so come and take your time and dance with me. Joan Jett has the ability to take a topic, whether it be about being in love or general self-awareness, and making it her own while still remaining rocking and relatable. The song, I Hate Myself for Loving You, says it all in that title. It's about one person in a relationship's over-dependence on another and recognizing it, but not removing it from their life. Lyrics like the pre-chorus, I think of you every night and day, you took my heart and you took my pride away, are sung from the perspective of someone so enamored by another that they've knowingly sacrificed their own self-worth while the other person isn't invested much at all. More interesting is in the chorus when she sings, I hate myself for loving you, can't break free from the things that you do, I want to walk, but I run back to you. That's why I hate myself for loving you. It's this juxtaposition of a rocker like Joan Jett singing these lyrics against the hard-driving guitars and beat of the drums to the music that's interesting to hear. She's demonstrating her rock power while wielding her guitar, but showing a vulnerability in the lyrics as someone without the strength to move on from an unhealthy relationship. While most of the songs in her catalog are cover versions, such as Crimson and Clover and I Love Rock and Roll, 
It's a song like this that demonstrates her original songwriting capability, and it reaffirms why she's more of a trailblazer rather than just someone who's trendy. As I Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 2 was released in April of 1982 and peaked at number 9 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are the Motels, and the song is Only the Lonely. As the lead singer of the band The Motels, Martha Davis used her lower register to sing seductively and sensually about everything from painful heartache to lovelorn regrets. This is a woman who lived each lyric she sang using her full-on, sultry voice, which radiated with passion in every line. During the early 1980s, the Motels saw a string of successful songs on the charts, such as Suddenly Last Summer, Take the L, Total Control, and Remember the Nights. But it is their song, Only the Lonely, which is their most recognized and remembered, undoubtedly for its hauntingly beautiful melody and its delivery in Martha Davis's rich vocals. The way she enunciates the lyrics, It's like I told you, only the lonely can play, is simultaneously seductive and yet heartbreakingly effective in conveying the conflict that she's facing during the song. She's faced with encountering a former lover and fighting to allow the memories of their romance to all flood back and overwhelm her. Lyrics like, you mentioned the time we were together so long ago. While I don't remember, all I know is it makes me feel good now demonstrate her longing for a return to a time and a love that was once familiar, but just wasn't meant to last. These lyrics combined with her passionate delivery show that she's in an unguarded place where she's either not in a position to or incapable of acting upon her feelings. My favorite part of the song is at the bridge when the strings play through and they give way to the unsung hero instrument of the 1980s, the saxophone it absolutely catapults the song into another atmosphere. The song is already soaring and the saxophone allows it to envelop itself in the regret of lost passion and lost love, all communicated through the saxophone. This is of course followed by Martha Davis reiterating the refrain of the lyrics, only the lonely, only the lonely can play. It's like I told you, only the lonely can play. She then goes in for what's undeniably the most heartfelt note of the song when she breathily sings, Only the Lonely Can Play, and the music fades out. If you haven't heard it, listen to the song. You'll hear it toward the end. There's just an unbelievable way that she hits this note that is otherworldly and seems to defy what a human can do, but she does it so effectively and so easily. That final note is both knowing and evocative as she puts everything within her into it. This is one of those songs that successfully captures the listener's ear and knows how to convey feelings of nostalgia, bliss, love, and sadness all in three plus minutes that are all too familiar and fleeting for some. The majority of women-led bands didn't see much success beyond the middle of the decade when rap music, pop artists, and other emerging genres began to dominate the radio stations and music video channels. It's too bad that a number of promising bands such as the Motels faded away when listeners checked out 
and didn't check back in. As Only the Lonely by the Motel slowly fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 3 was released in September of 1981 and peaked at number 3 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Quarter Flash, and the song is Hard in My Heart. I wasn't yet 10 years old when I first heard the song Harden My Heart by Quarter Flash, with its undeniably memorable saxophone intro played by lead singer Rindy Ross. After the intro, she begins the verses with an almost anguished sound in her voice as she sings, Crying on the corner, waiting in the rain, I swear I'll never, ever wait again. You gave me your word, but words from you are lies. The unsung hero instrument of the decade, the saxophone, is used effectively to open the song and then as an extension of lead singer Rindy Ross's voice as it volleys between her singing the lyrics and the instrument playing the music. She effectively allows her voice and the instrument to intertwine with one another and communicate the strength that she's found at walking away from a failed relationship. There's a vulnerable break in her voice during the verses that almost hints at uncertainty, but is no doubt full-on confident when she hits the chorus of, I'm going to harden my heart, I'm going to swallow my tears, I'm going to turn and leave you here, which can easily be seen as a readied reaction by anyone facing betrayal or personal turmoil from a lover. This song has a great tempo with the music production of guitars, percussion, and keyboard balancing time with the aching lyrics sung by the lead singer, Rindy Ross. Hardening one's heart and swallowing one's tears can be easier said than done, but there's no doubt that she's determined and focused on leaving the relationship without being pulled back in again. Quarter Flash unfairly often appear on one hit wonders lists because of how strong the song was and important in, in how its impact were. However, they did see success with additional singles, Find Another Fool and Take Me to Heart. It's just with expectations of the record company and the audience at the time being so high, there was no way for them to match or exceed the success of the song. So any follow-ups that peaked in the top 20 on the chart were just considered unsuccessful by comparison. As a child who grew up watching music videos on MTV when the music format was new and they consistently played them, I remember the video of Harden My Heart being one of the more unusual ones that I saw. This was around a time that most bands that put out music videos simply had the band playing the song or miming the instruments or the lead singer uh, looking to the camera and singing the lyrics into a microphone you started to see bands and artists and musicians experimenting and uh, being in different locations or using different set pieces to try and convey, um, I guess, the idea that the song itself was popular, yes, but uh, look at the video to hear the song on repeat so that it will become even more popular with the public. The music video for Harden My Heart it depicts the lead singer, Rindy Ross, running through hallways with wood paneling that was very similar to what we had in our house at the time in 1981, and numerous closed doors as light fixtures are swinging about high above her head. Uh, she eventually opens a door that leads to fire jugglers, gymnasts, and acrobats all cavorting about, um, and she sings the chorus. 
And then upon re-entering the hallway, she finds another door that leads to a dressing table in the middle of a rock quarry <laughs> with a younger version of herself miming the lyrics before she transforms back into her adult self and then finds herself surrounded by several child versions of herself. Then it's back into the hallway and through another door that leads to her playing the saxophone solo while the band is standing around her all in a giant puddle. Suddenly men on motorcycles encircle her and the band and the men are wearing uh, tuxedos and formal wear. And then this is followed by the end chorus with her now wearing a tuxedo that matches the rest of the men as a fully formal wear clad man with a flamethrower thrashes about sending shots of flames into the air. Eventually she makes her way out of the maze and onto the back of a motorcycle getting away before a bulldozer demolishes the maze structure and the formal wear flamethrower sets it all ablaze for good measure. This is literally the end of the video. I feel like Bonnie Tyler's video director saw this and said, we see you video for Harden My Heart, and we'll raise you with our video for Total Eclipse of the Heart. Disjointed? Yes. <laughs> Memorable? Yes. Effective? Well, the video garnered regular airplay, but it was also during a time when MTV had about 50 or so videos in their arsenal to rotate. So whether it was popular or whether it was played just because, you can be the judge. As Harden My Heart by Quarter Flash fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 4 was released in January of 1988 and peaked at number 68 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are 10,000 Maniacs, and the song is Like the Weather. I can remember a time period just after the middle of the 1980s when my mother would experience bouts of extreme mood swings ranging from these emotional highs where she was animated and easily excitable to low depressions where she became disinterested and just unfocused. Her mood would often switch from periods of unbridled energy where she was active and engaged to periods where there was this unusual irritability or a lack of interest in activities. My mother was always moving. <laughs> My earliest memories of her are about her enthusiastically smiling and laughing and singing about our house and just anywhere she was in general. She had a host of interests that occupied her time and she loved living life. So when there was a sudden change in her behavior and personality, it definitely was noticed. I remember I was a teenager at the time and I wasn't really thinking much of it other than maybe she was behaving this way because she was entering her 40s and was having difficulty rationalizing this point of life. I just figured that this was something that happened to people as they aged and faced the mortality of getting older. I was of course quite wrong because as I would learn years later from my parents when we talked about what was really happening. Um, I had learned that she had been experiencing bouts relating to manic depression and she was clinically diagnosed and had sought treatment with medication and therapies. My father really demonstrated the vow in sickness and in health as he supported her throughout as she regained a healthy balance assisted by the various medications and therapies that were provided at the time. 
Manic depression is more commonly referred to and accepted as bipolar disorder nowadays, but I can recall the negative stigma surrounding mental illnesses during the 1980s. Unlike today, where a barrage of advertisements and television program commercials cater to diagnosing and treating mental illnesses, uh, during the 80s, it was more commonly seen as a limitation of full functionality and that a person lacked some sort of deficiency in that they'd have difficulty navigating or managing within society. Medications and counseling were not as openly promoted or provided for those who suffered, and their silence sometimes went unheard. Many who found themselves living amongst the homeless population that I saw to and from my way to school were amongst such a population suffering, and this just wasn't restricted to only the San Francisco Bay Area, but all over the world. Instead, it took doctors appearing on daytime talk shows like Phil Donahue or Oprah Winfrey to convey to the general public and beyond that there was nothing to be ashamed of in diagnosing mental illnesses or in addressing and treating them. For some people, it was difficult to acknowledge the suffering and others saw it as something that wasn't real or surely couldn't have the impact that it supposedly did on people. There were also those that were even still believing and pandering to the idea that homosexuality was a mental illness. The song Like the Weather by 10,000 Maniacs is undoubtedly about a person suffering from an undisclosed mental illness. The person in the song is dealing with depression and hesitation to engage in life and is withdrawn into their bed with the dark lyrics contrasting the jubilant music production of the track. The intro to the song provides an upbeat tone inviting the listener to tap their foot and sway along as lead singer Natalie Merchant sings the telling lyrics, The color of the sky as far as I can see is cold gray. Lift my head from the pillow and then fall again. Shiver in my bones just thinking about the weather. Quiver in my lip as if I might cry. Well by the force of will my lungs are filled and so I breathe. Lately it seems this big bed is where I'll never leave. It's my interpretation that these verses are saying that the person in the song is surviving and breathing because her body fills with air and not because she has the feeling of being awake and alive as an individual. It also conveys the helplessness and depressive feeling that nothing is worth waking up for, let alone using the energy and motivation to get out of bed. It's such a well-crafted song with its use of musical production as the guitars strum in time with the percussion bringing a euphoric sound to downbeat lyrics like, where on earth is the sun hid away? The lyrics, do I need someone here to scold me or do I need someone who'll grab and pull me out of this four poster dull torpor pulling downward for it is such a long time since my better days. I say my prayers nightly, this will pass away. The genius in the lyrics are that they communicate the impact, as well as through Natalie Merchant's unparalleled vocals, that the person in the song knows she needs help outside of herself in order to become well. Her voice sings a melancholy song about depression and identifying, rationalizing, and seeking to reconcile it. The music video shows Natalie Merchant dancing around a room amid brightly colored sets and scenes and blink and you'll miss them images of her flailing about underwater and falling from the sky toward the ground as if nothing's wrong. These are direct contradiction, contradictions to the song's lyrics. The song has very serious commentary about manic depression and shouldn't be ignored. 
But discover and acknowledge, like so many other people out there who suffer from this and other very real illnesses. As Like the Weather by 10,000 Maniacs ends, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 5 was released in September of 1985 and peaked at number 4 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. Get ready for a double dose of females up front. The artists are heart, and the song is never. When I was 12 years old, I was a weekly viewer of MTV's Top 20 Video Countdown, which aired on Friday nights on the channel. It was the closest thing I could get to a video mixtape of all the popular music videos of the week, all played in their entirety from number 20 to number 1, with occasional segments thrown in from VJs like Martha Quinn or Adam Curry. This was where I could see music videos by different artists like Wang Chung or Level 42 that would debut one week, and then they'd be gone a few weeks later in order to make room for new videos by U2 or Madonna. Then I could watch and watch them climb and see how far they'd get if they'd make it all the way to number one or if they'd fall in the top five or if they'd fall out of the charts in the upcoming weeks. The music video for Heart's song, What About Love, premiered during the summer of 1985. And though I'd heard some of their 70s songs like Barracuda, Magic Man, and Crazy on You, thanks to my father, I wasn't as familiar with them as a band. I remember the videos for What About Love and the newer single, Never, were both featured on the Top 20 Countdown at the same time, which piqued my interest because I wanted to listen further. Um, There were only a handful of artists that seemed to achieve the feat of having one, if two, videos on the Countdown at the same time. This was something I saw happen with Michael Jackson, with Cyndi Lauper, with Madonna, U2. Um, And I remember borrowing slash taking my father's copy of the album Heart. And once the needle hit the vinyl, I was absolutely impressed with the driving music and sounds from Side A's opening track, If Looks Could Kill. Ann Wilson's voice hit the rafters and beyond as she wailed and sang in harmony with Sister Nancy and the rest of the band. It was absolutely incredible to hear such a commanding and confident vocal and just listen through the headphones at the experience of the soaring notes that she easily achieved. That song was followed by the engaging songs What About Love, Never, These Dreams with uh, Sister Nancy on the lead, and it ended side A with the underrated track The Wolf. I was instantly a fan, and I found myself visiting the previous albums that Hart had made. Now, I noticed that there was a lack of commercial support or recognition for their earlier 80s albums and found out that they had made minimal impacts on the radio or on the charts. So it was understandable that the album Heart, released in 1985, was a comeback of sorts for them. Well, comeback they did, and they rode the strength of it onward to the biggest hit of their career a little bit later, Alone. While I'm a fan of that song, and I've heard my share of friends and strangers alike belted out at a karaoke bar over the years, my favorite from their 80s heyday has to be the song Never. The song Never is just a rock and roll song at its core, with the opening lyrics sung by Ann Wilson of, Hey baby, I'm talking to you. Stop yourself and listen. Some things you can never choose, even if you try, yeah. You're hanging your head again because somebody won't let you in. One chance, one love, 
your chance to let me know, which reverses the roles of a man traditionally singing or saying something like this to a woman. And instead, she's telling him to consider her and their love because her heart is open and receptive to his. I interpret the song as being about a man who is reluctant to commit to a relationship with someone, and she's challenging him on the reasons behind it. Uh, Lyrics like, hey, baby, you know it's true. Why you bother lying when you know that you want it to? Don't you dare deny me. Walk those legs right over here. Give me what I'm dying for. One chance, one love. Hold me down, never let me go. Again, those convey her desire to embark on a relationship with someone who might need some convincing to jump headfirst in with her. A notable difference from other female-fronted bands during this time was that there were two women leading the band, with sisters Anne and Nancy Wilson providing lead vocals, background vocals, musical arrangements, and other instrumentation throughout. Though the male members of the band would come and go, at its core, or rather at its heart, if you will, remain the signature powerhouse vocals of Ann Wilson and the passionate guitar playing accompaniment of her sister Nancy on tracks like Alone, These Dreams, and Never. Just try and resist pumping your fist into the air and chanting along with heart during the chorus of Never. Never, never, no, never, never run away. Try it. As never by heart fades out, I'll press stop on the cassette player and eject the tape to inside A. We're halfway there. I flip the tape over and press the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to start side B. Track 1 was released in February of 1984 and peaked at number 23 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Berlin, and the song is No More Words. Not that I'm bragging, but I was the person responsible for single-handedly winning a trivia night contest for my team during my friend Aaron's Y2K 80s replay party during New Year's Eve 1999. The party was held at a popular event center near Fisherman's Wharf in the San Francisco Bay Area so that we could view the fireworks at the ferry building along the pier as the New Year chimed in. The place also had several bar areas, dance floors, and was packed with patrons. I found myself sitting at a table with my friends Libby, Rob, Amanda, and Scotty. Amanda and Scotty were dating, but only I knew because I'd caught them kissing earlier in the evening, and they said not to tell anyone, like we were all still in high school or something. The place was offering a cash prize of $2,000 to any team that could win the ultimate 80s trivia contest. I remember the hairs on the back of my neck standing up at the thought of winning $2,000, What a way to end one century and start another. It was a no-brainer for us to enter, so Libby, Rob, Amanda, Scotty, and I entered, and we called ourselves Team Risky Business, which we thought was quite funny and in line with the 80s theme. I remember looking around the bar and seeing a few other teams with older members and thinking that they might have an advantage for some reason, and while I'd mostly forgotten the majority of what I'd learned in primary school, high school, and college, My brain was a Rolodex of 80s information. There was no way we weren't winning. I was also prepared to stand up and shout, this contest is rigged at any point if I felt like we were losing. Anyway, the questions were asked by the host who said he would only ask them once 
and if you were too drunk or too stupid to answer, your team would be out. As the time elapsed with midnight several hours away and the worries of some that once the clock struck 12 a.m., computers would stop working and civilization would grind to a halt, we started the contest. As we know, once midnight struck, followed by 12.01 a.m., things were just fine. I suppose we could have just paid attention to the television monitors that were airing celebrations in other cities and countries across the globe, like Tokyo, London, and Sydney, that showed things were working just fine. But we were more focused on the contest at hand. I got a sense that these weren't going to be easy questions when the host asked for all of the names and order by age from oldest to youngest of the Huxtable children. I remember arguing with Rob and then with Libby because first Rob insisted that Denise, played by Lisa Bonet, was the oldest. And I said, I'm telling you, the oldest was Sandra because she was already away at college and they didn't show her that much. She's the oldest sister. Then uh, then it's Denise, Theo, Vanessa, and Rudy. Then Libby said that Raven Simone was on the show at some point, and so she must be the youngest child because she was so young, so she should be last. To which I said, no, she's the stepdaughter of Lisa Bonet's character, Denise, and the military guy, whose name I couldn't remember, that she brings home like in the later seasons. Raven Simone was not an actual Huxtable child. You had to write down your answer on a piece of paper that was then collected by someone who'd take it over to the host, and he would verify whether or not your team answered correctly and whether or not you would advance or be eliminated. Throughout the evening, several teams uh, advanced, and of course, some were eliminated. Um, We did get that question right. And if the question should ever come up asking for the names and ages from oldest to youngest of the Huxtable children, they're Sandra, Denise, Theo, Vanessa, and Rudy. Anyway, as the night and the game continued, it was down to three teams. Ours, Return of the Red Eyes, which I don't know where they got that name from, and a team just called Jack's Family. No joking, these were the final teams. The final question was, name the lead singer and the band who sing the following lyrics that won the Academy Award at the 1987 ceremony for Best Song. The host then said the lyrics, Through the hourglass I saw you, in time you slipped away. When the mirror crashed, I called you and turned to hear you say, if only for today, I am unafraid. I immediately wrote down Terry Nunn of Berlin and whispered to Libby, we're going to win. When the host read the three papers, he announced that Return of the Red Eyes wrote Grace Slick and that it was wrong and that Jack's family and Risky Business had tied by both answering Terry Nunn of Berlin. He then said it was sudden death and asked each team to send one person up to him and answer the final, final question. I remember running up to the podium where he was standing before anyone else at my table could say anything, and Jack from Jack's family came up from his team. The host had to shake hands before placing a, a call bell in between us on the table and said, I'll only ask once, and the correct answer will win $2,000. When you know the answer, press the bell. He had us put our hands at our sides and said, here goes. In the music video for Berlin's Academy Award-winning song, Take My Breath Away, from top to bottom, name the colors of Terry Nunn's hair. I don't even remember hitting the bell, but I must have because the host pointed at me and I remember screaming out, it was blonde with black tips at the ends, which of course was the correct answer. And the members of Team Risky Business each had $400 more than we'd had earlier in the night to welcome in the new millennium. Well, Take My Breath Away is a great song in its own right, and I'm eternally grateful for it helping me win a contest over 20 years ago. I'm a fan of Berlin's earlier songs like Masquerade, The Metro, Now It's My Turn, Sex, Ima, 
and No More Words. There's always been something engaging about the raw passion that lead singer Terry Nunn displays in their songs. There's a calculated urgency in her voice during the song No More Words when she sings lyrics like, You're talking, it all sounds fair. You promise your love, how much you care. I'm still listening and still unsure. Your actions are lacking, nothing is clear. Her tone is both accusatory and affectionate toward her lover during these verses, which is really provocative. She's telling her lover that she needs to be touched and have a physical connection rather than just him talking at and to her. I especially love the bridge where the music of the drums, synth, and guitar swell as she sings, but don't fool yourself. Your empty passion won't satisfy me. I know, so don't pretend that you want me. You don't want me. No. The music video falls in line with quarter flashes, Harden My Heart, in that the video has absolutely nothing to do with the song. Instead, in the video, the band is paying homage to Depression-era gangsters Bonnie and Clyde, with them robbing a bank, followed by police in hot pursuit. Highlights during the video include lead singer Terry Nunn belting out the chorus, No more words. You're telling me you love me while you're looking away. No more words. No more words. And no more promises of love. During a gunfire battle between police and her fellow gangsters in the Depression-era vehicle they're driving. I remember the song was featured in the movie Vision Quest, and the 45 single of Madonna's Crazy For You had no more words as its B-side. I remember thinking that maybe it meant that Madonna and Terry Nunn would collaborate or duet on a song one day, but instead of that, we got Madonna collaborating with Britney Spears. As No More Words by Berlin fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 2 was released in October of 1984 and peaked at number 41 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Scandal, and the song is Hands Tied. I was in college in 1992 when the song Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough was being played all over the radio, and I remember a friend of mine named Rebecca asked me one day if I'd heard the song as she put it, sung by Don Henley and some woman. I'd heard the song, and I recall saying back to her surprised that some woman is Patty Smythe. I then watched as Rebecca's facial expression didn't change at this news. From the band Scandal, Patty Smythe, I said shocked that my friend was supposed to know who Patty Smythe was, even though she hadn't been on the radio in about seven or eight years at that point. I've never heard of her, Rebecca said, confirming what I already realized. I remember singing a few lines from the song The Warrior to her to see if she recognized the song. Shooting at the walls of heartache, bang, bang, I am the warrior. Which she did, but she didn't remember the female lead singer in the group. This exchange happened roughly 30 years ago, so neither of us had a cell phone to instantly pull up a picture of Patti Smythe or play some of Scandal's greatest hits like Goodbye to You or The Warrior, which of course was a top 10 smash. I remember making Rebecca a mixtape sometime after with the song Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough and some Scandal songs like Love's Got a Line on You and Beat of a Heart mixed in with some Don Henley, songs like Dirty Laundry and The End of the Innocence, as well as songs from Patti Smythe's record like No Mistakes and I Should Be Laughing. 
I remember how huge the song and music video for The Warrior were, so it was astonishing that the follow-up single Hands Tied fell shy of even making the top 40 on the US Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. While I absolutely enjoyed their more popular song and only top 40 hit The Warrior, I've always had a sentimental spot for the song Hands Tied. I remember being enthralled by Patti Smythe's sad stance throughout the song where she pleads her case to her lover through the verses, darling, 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 I'll never understand how sometimes just the way you look at me can tear out my heart, but then again, darling, 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 don't look across the room because you might just catch me looking at you. Should we know what to say or what to do? She's such an underrated singer and she uses her talented voice as the instrument that it was intended to be. The musical arrangement of the song is also fantastic as the guitar's riff and the drum beats just to keep time with the sound of anguish in her vocals, especially when it builds in the middle right before the second chorus with the lyrics, so hold on, don't take my heart away, while the rest of the band comes in to harmonize the lyric with her on don't take my heart away. Before Patti Smythe continues the lyric, she may be one good reason to leave, but I'm a hundred reasons to stay. And how can we touch with our hands tied when only you know how much you keep me satisfied? She demonstrates such a strong range of vocals with just singing the word satisfied, which really shows how powerful of a rock singer she was in my opinion, Patti Smythe was one of the best rock vocalists of the decade, alongside Pat Benatar and Stevie Nicks, and deserved more longevity as an artist than we saw or heard. As Hands Tied by Scandal fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 3 was released in July of 1988 and peaked at number 53 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. The artists are Susie and the Banshees, and the song is Peekaboo. When I was a kid, the world could be a very dangerous place. I was continuously reminded to look both ways before crossing the street for oncoming traffic, constantly told not to accept candy or rides from any strangers I didn't recognize, and often reminded that I could someday wind up like one of the missing children on the side of our milk carton. As a kid living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was sometimes apprehensive about things that were unfamiliar to me, but more often than not, I was just as curious about them as well. The more I was told to stay away from an abandoned house several neighborhoods away from ours and not to play near it, the more my friends and I would go meet there and play games like hide-and-go-seek or tag. San Francisco was a very different place during the 1980s, and while some areas had been cleaned up and reconstructed to represent a haven for tourists seeking the experience of linking arms romantically and walking together throughout Pier 39, or hopping onto a moving cable car like they saw in the Riceroni commercials, many areas within the city were still littered with adult bookstores, X-rated film houses, and sex workers parading up and down the streets and lurking in back alleyways, watching and waiting for potential clientele. As a little boy, I had a sense of which neighborhood we were in, depending upon how tightly my mother gripped my hand and how fast we walked. My mother always had a poker face that read, 
don't mess with me. So we, we were never approached or bothered by anyone living or making a living on the streets. I remember passing by Knob Hill Mill Adult Bookstore and Theater in the heart of the city several times during my youth with its giant rectangular marquee above the building that flashed the words, men, men, men. And when I was 14 years old, I decided I wanted to see what was on the other side of the outside windows covered with dark draperies and the front entrance door with its frosted glass blocking out any curious eyes from peeking in. I remember my friend Tina was with me, and we stood outside in the daylight hours in front of the place long enough for me to be propositioned, but I simply stated I wasn't interested and was left alone. Tina decided not to go in, and instead I remember pushing open the door and walking in for the first time and being instantly astonished at how much of a letdown it was. Except for the adult magazines, movies, and products for sale on shelves all around me, the inside reminded me of the Cinema 5 movie theater with its popcorn drywall and thick red carpeting decorations. There was a staircase to the left that led downstairs and another to the right that led upstairs with signage saying both areas featured private rooms and theater areas. The man behind the counter did say hello to me, but he didn't even ask me for ID, and we both knew I wasn't 18 years old, nor could I pass for it. After standing in the lobby of the theater and the bookstore for a few more moments, I returned shortly after to my friend Tina standing out on the street outside, and when she asked if it was all gross and nasty inside, I said, not really. In fact, it seemed much cleaner than Cinema 5. The song Peekaboo by Susie and the Banshees celebrates the pleasures and perversions people seek at such places, and refrains from passing judgment on the acts and activities lead singer Susie Sue sings about in lyrics like creeping up the back stairs, slinking into dark stalls, shapeless and slumped in bath chairs, furtive eyes peep out of holes. She has many guises, she'll do what you want her to, playing dead in sweet submission, cracks the whip dead pad on cue. Although during the chorus she turns a taunting tone with the chant of, golly jeepers, where'd you get those peepers? Peep show, creep show, where did you get those eyes? When this song came out, I remember hearing it on the radio late at night and only seeing the video on MTV's 120 Minutes, which was a program that played two hours of goth and alternative and college rock videos late on Saturday night into early Sunday morning. The majority of the song's meaning and the lyrics went way over my head, except for the chorus of Peekaboo, which I loved because of how sinister Susie Sue pronounced it. I always also really liked the combination of the accordion and drum sound fused together along with the brass and microphone manipulation that she did with her vocals to get them to sound like they were coming from two different people singing in a call and response manner. The Knob Hill Male Adult Theater closed its doors last year after servicing the community of San Francisco for more than 50 years. So in recognition, I feel it's appropriate to play Susie and the Banshee's song Peekaboo one final time. As Peekaboo by Susie and the Banshees ends, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 4 was released in May of 1982 and peaked at number 42 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are missing persons, and the song is Words. 
Missing Persons were an interesting band full of talented players that emerged right around the start of the 1980s from the Los Angeles punk rock music scene. And after they released three albums during the decade, they wound up calling it quits right around the midpoint of the 1980s. Their first album called Spring Session M is filled with tight music production and nearly every song on that album has a creative hook that just captures your ear, whereas lead singer Del Bozio succeeded at capturing your eye with her cut down to there, slid up to here, and barely there outfits on stage and in their music videos that she became known for. Not to mention her signature style of singing, She perfected this high-pitched squeak sound used to accent specific words during lyrics that made her a blueprint years prior to Madonna and decades before Gwen Stefani and Lady Gaga repurposed their looks and sound. No other band of their time looked or sounded like missing persons, and while lead singer Del Bozio's physical appearance garnered much of how the record company chose to market them as a style-over-substance musical act, They continued experimenting with sounds and songwriting that reflected the talent and creativity of who they really were and exactly what they wanted to put out for their fans. But after all, this was in the early days of MTV, and that meant an artist was only going to sell records or be as successful as much as the audience saw of them. The band found themselves often at odds with the record company who weren't interested in putting more money into allowing them to develop creatively and instead put pressure on them to make hit records to make more money. This created tension within the band, as well as within the marriage of singer Del Bozio and her husband, drummer Terry. This eventually resulted in the band splitting up and the marriage actually divorcing. Though becoming popular with fans through live concerts and videos played on MTV, and despite receiving airplay for their songs Destination Unknown, Walking in LA, and Give, Missing Persons never achieved a top 40 single. The closest they came was the song Words, which peaked at number 42. Words has the distinction of being a song about talking over the failure and breakdown of person-to-person communication decades before the failure and breakdown of person-to-person communication due to factors like technology and media interference occurred. Lyrics like, my lips are moving and the sound's coming out. The words are audible, but I have my doubts that you realize what has been said. You look at me as if you're in a daze. It's like the feeling at the end of the page when you realize you don't know what you just read. I'm actually surprised the song didn't chart higher with its futuristic synths and stellar drumming by Terry Bozio. Not to mention, again, that high-pitched squeak hiccup sound that Del Bozio makes at the end of the lyrics, my lips are moving and the sound's coming out, and the lyric, I might as well go up and talk to a wall. She really hits the accent at the end of each of those words in those lyrics, and it's just unique, and it's something that I hadn't heard uh, in music at the time or really since. There are some artists out there that do something similar, but it will never never have the originality that, that she had at the time. I guess their music and their persona and just their image and uh, everything that they were doing was just too out there for 1982 uh, because the airwaves were saturated with artists like Paul McCartney, Rick Springfield, and Stevie Wonder. 
and new wave rock acts like Berlin, Missing Persons, and the Human League were facing challenges, trying to make headway on the charts. As words by Missing Persons fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the last song. Our final track was released in September of 1982 and peaked at number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are The Pretenders, and the song is Back on the Chain Gang. The Pretenders are a band led by the incredible leader Chrissy Hind that have rightfully earned the recognition and respect of many of their musical peers throughout their five-decade career in rock and roll music. Founding member and lead singer Chrissy Hine is among one of the most well-regarded female rock vocalists in history, as well as a celebrated songwriter of some of the band's most well-known songs, such as Brass and Pocket, I'll Stand By You, Don't Get Me Wrong, Middle of the Road, and Back on the Chain Gang. For those unfamiliar, a chain gang is something that historically has been associated with prisons where convicts are tethered together in chains to complete difficult and often time-consuming manual labor. The only prison that the song Back on the Chain Gang references is the prison of one's own mind, which can also be a much darker and difficult place for someone to escape from than an actual prison cell. The song begins with the lyrics, I found a picture of you, what hijacked my world that night, to a place in the past we've been cast out of, now we're back in the fight. These lyrics can be interpreted as lead singer Chrissy Hines' rationalization and realization of the loss of her bandmate and friend, James Honeyman Scott, to an early death by drug overdose prior to the group recording their third album. Seeing his picture instantly transports her to a prior time, possibly a happier time, when they were on better terms, perhaps, but in any event, it gives her the chance to make peace with the past and recollect on the demons he dealt with that he was unable to overcome. The next verse includes the lyrics, a circumstance beyond our control, the phone, the TV, and the news of the world, God in the house like a pigeon from hell, threw sand in our eyes and descended like flies, which implies the press surrounding the events of her bandmate and friend's death becoming an opportunity for those curious, like the media, about what the band was feeling or experiencing due to the shocking nature of his death. The bridge of the song is where she sings the poignant lyrics, the powers that be that force us to live like we do Bring me to my knees when I see what they've done to you. But I'll die as I stand here today, knowing that deep in my heart, they'll fall to ruin one day for making us part. This area, the bridge, is especially, it's heartfelt and it conveys her frustration with the expectation that the band is expected to just get back to business or get back on the chain gang, if you will, when they haven't properly had an opportunity to grieve. They haven't had that opportunity to explore and experience that raw emotion that comes from such a tragedy, such a humongous loss, not just to them creatively, 
but for someone that was their friend and someone who was there to see the start of and the inception of this group and carry it forward to suddenly have his life cut short so young to, to not have the opportunity to sort of wrap one's head around that experience is, is extremely frustrating. But uh, again, the, the record companies and the touring providers and the songwriters and all of the people associated with the music business are looking to continue to make money themselves. And the, expectation is that the chain gang still has work that has to be done. And as a result, the artists have to put the chains back on and get back on that chain gang and get the work completed so that the cycle can continue. The pretenders are a band that have lyrics in their songs that delve deeper and into more poignant and meaningful subjects than just what's on the surface. So while the the song back on the chain gang it isn't about a traditional um sense of what a chain gang historically has meant it's more so about the chains that oftentimes are wrapped around ourselves that are self-imposed that as much as we can we have to work at them to really rectify and move those chains away from us so that we can continue to move forward without having to be on an actual chain gang we can move forward with our own thoughts and we can move forward happily and healthily as those who were unable to do so before us would want us to. And we did it. We've completed our eighth podcast playlist mixtape. I'll go ahead and press stop and eject our tape. I'm going to label it and put it into our cassette tape holder and we're all finished. I hope you were inspired and entertained by the leading ladies that fronted and continue to front some of the most impressive and influential bands in music. We can't go on just running away. If we stay any longer, we will surely never get away. Anything you want, we can make it happen. Stand up and turn around. Never let them shoot us down. I hope that you've enjoyed this experience as much as I have bringing it to you and that you'll continue to listen and support Jimmy's extraordinary 80s playlist as we celebrate the music and the memories of the greatest decade to live in and live through the 1980s.